This is PhotoBizX, episode number 377, and today is a little stray from the usual. Although we're focused on business, we're going to be talking about improving your photography skills, personal projects, alternative sources of income, and getting better at just producing great, consistent work. Our special guest is Eduardo Pavez Goy, and that interview is coming up in just a minute. Are you planning to have a successful wedding and portrait photography business? Join Andrew as he interviews successful photographers and business experts to fast track your success. Welcome to the Photo Biz Exposed podcast with your host, Andrew Helmich. Hey, it's Andrew Helmich here from Impact Images and welcome to this episode of the podcast. If the audio sounds a little different to usual, <laughs> it's because I'm recording in a slightly different spot. I'm at the, the local tyre store, I guess is the right terminology. I'm getting some new tyres put on my car. And because I've got a busy weekend ahead with a bike race on this afternoon, a big ride tomorrow morning, and then Linda and I are heading off to the Blue Mountains for the week. So this is a little window, a little opportunity to record the intro and the outro for today's episode of the podcast. It's only 8am here on a Saturday morning. I've been up since 5.30. I, I reluctantly got out of a warm bed, but it was for, for good reason. I, uh, I headed down to the beach to continue working on my personal photography project, which has um, been coming together nicely. And I'm pretty confident that after you hear today's interview with Eduardo, you too will be inspired to continue working on your own personal project if you haven't already or you haven't been shooting for yourself at all. And I guess that continues on from me after the interview with Dan Milnor and also kicking off the photography book project we've got going on with PhotoBizX members. So we're currently, well, I'm currently talking to three different graphic designers we're all going to chip in those contributing to the book project to help pay for a professional designer even that's been interesting we've got two quotes in so far one from a recent graduate designer for five hundred dollars another one from a more experienced designer for twelve hundred and fifty dollars and i'm waiting on a third quote from who i feel will be the the best designer for our project she was the one who asked the most questions, who seemed the most engaged, was keen to get on the phone. And what happened was as soon as we got on the phone to talk about the project, she was able to get across her enthusiasm for the, for the project, for the idea. She loved the concept. She loved the theme, the fact that it's going to be involving photographers from around the world. So just, just hearing her enthusiasm, you just don't get that via an email, the same way that you do in a phone call. So I guess that the big lesson for me and, and you can take this or leave it, is if you get a chance to get a client on the phone, you, you really need to do it. It's the only way to, to really engage, show your enthusiasm, share a bit of your personality and show how interested you are in actually working with the client that you're talking to. I guess, I guess the little caveat is, uh, unless you're going to be sending a video message, you know, which I guess is as close as you're going to get to a phone call where, you, you know, where the client gets to put a face to a name and they get to see your enthusiasm, your smile, if you've got one, and uh, and your passion for the project and working with the client, but yeah, look, that was that was a, a standout thing for me with this particular designer. Now, what's going to happen if she's the most expensive? Well, I'm going to have to go back to the PhotoBizX members that are contributing to the project and see if they want to chip in that little bit extra to pay for the the better designer. It'll be interesting to see how that goes, but I'll I'll let you know once we once we get further down the road with that. And now a macro look at our last episode. 
If you didn't catch last week's episode with Cheryl Walsh, she is the underwater portrait fine art photographer who is so, so passionate about printing. Now, interestingly, there hasn't been a lot of feedback since I recorded that interview. So I don't know if I missed the mark with my questioning. Maybe the idea of in-house printing didn't resonate with you. Maybe it was the, the fine art photography that Cheryl does. It wasn't something that um, immediately jumped out and grabbed you because you're a wedding or a portrait or a, a headshot photographer or a pet photographer. So I'm not exactly sure why there's been so little feedback. I'd love to hear from you if you do have some ideas on, on why. And I will say, if you are interested in producing fine art work to sell on your website, if you are interested in in-house printing and how and why that can make you a better photographer, then definitely get back and have a listen to that interview with Cheryl. And uh, yeah, look, I'd love to hear your feedback once you do have a chance to, uh, to listen to that interview. Photo Biz Exposed. Interviews with photographers to help you build a better photography business. Alrighty, we're going to jump into this interview with Eduardo in just a second. If you are hearing this announcement, it does mean you are listening to the free version of the podcast. And what that means is you won't be hearing the full interview today with Eduardo because I do save a big portion of the second half for premium members only. So if what Eduardo is sharing in the first half of the interview resonates with you, if you're enjoying what he's sharing, if you want to hear more from Eduardo, it's the same with every other guest and every other episode. You can easily access the full interview every single week with a premium membership and you can trial that. You can sample it. You can test it out. Give it a run for 30 days for $1. Head over to photobizx.com forward slash try. Sign up for the 30-day trial. Hear the full interview with Eduardo today. Get access to the full back catalogue and the full interviews with every single guest from the back catalogue and see if the premium membership is a good fit for you. photobizx.com forward slash try if you want to check that out. Welcome to another great eye for business. It's time for Andrew's special guest. Today's guest writes scripts, directs plays, sings in a band, and shoots film. He grew up in Chile and left in 2013. Since then, he's lived in Germany, the UK, and is currently completing a PhD of theatre and performance at Columbia University in New York. He was a wedding photographer for a couple of years, but that's not why I reached out to him for this interview. I stumbled across him on YouTube and I subscribed to his channel along with 80,000 others and love his approach to photography. In particular, his approach to personal projects. I'm looking forward to exploring more about his creative pursuits, the way he works at bettering himself for learning new skills, from learning how to shoot new cameras, creating zines, and his YouTube channel. I'm talking about Eduardo Pavez Goya, and I'm wrapped to have him here with us now. Eduardo, welcome. Hey, hello. <laughs> Glad to be here. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> Look, me too, me too. Look, first of all, you have to tell me and the listener why you started with wedding photography and why you got out of it. Okay, so I started wedding photographer because I... Here's the thing. I was working on television back in the day. I was writing scripts for television. And in television, when you start working in projects, at least in Chile, they don't hire you for the year. They hire you for the season of the project you're writing. So I was writing some TV series, and the season was going to end, and... I didn't have a contract afterwards because the contracts on television take a long time and you have to go through a lot of process and whatnot. 
So in between, I was like, okay, I need to make money out of something. And I was taking pictures, mostly editorials and product photography, I would say, even though I'm not a really professional product photographer, but I was doing mostly portraits and editorials. And a friend of mine, he's a wedding photographer. And he said, hey, man, it would be amazing if you could do, you know, video with me. Because I was, I had a 5D Mark II at the time. And I've never shot wedding videos. I had no idea about the wedding business. And I said, okay, I can make a video, sure. But I've never shot, you know, weddings. I was making videos for corporates back in the day. And I said, if I will make a wedding video, I'll probably make it like the corporate videos that I do. So it will be like 10 minutes or something like that. And this is 2010. So wedding videos were not a standard, like the standard at that time, at least in Chile, was like the two hour long video of weddings. And when I said 10 minute video and I said, yeah, I do something like a kind of more cinema approach. And, you know, it, it carries some interest in clients and I started shooting videos. And then I realized I was working a lot on the editing side of the video. And I started like drifting away from the video and moving into shooting pictures, which was less work for the same amount of money. And that's how I got into shooting weddings instead of shooting, you know, video for weddings. And I did that for four years, more or less. And was it a profitable, successful business? Here's the thing. It was what kept me afloat when I was not working on television. And then when I went back on television, I just enjoyed shooting weddings so much that I kept doing it in the meantime. And in Chile, in those days, I mean, I'm taking 10 years ago. So I was making not much money for wedding. I was like $1,500 was like, and that's what you get paid if you were like a top photographer of wedding photography, you know, <laughs> in those days in Chile. So it wasn't much, but by shooting two weddings, I was completely fine for the whole month and I could save money and I could do a lot of things. So I lived a pretty comfortable life shooting weddings in those days. So in a way, yes, it was a successful business because I kept doing it for four years but at the same time, weddings are really taxing on, you know, you have to be up to date, you have to be super creative all the time, you have to be challenging yourself all the time. And if you don't grow your business creatively while you're shooting weddings, you might run the risk of getting stuck in some kind of aesthetic or some kind of way of resolving the weddings. And yeah, I saw a lot of people coming and going in those four years that I was in the business. And eventually I left too. And there's people who are still there. Like my friend who used me to wedding photographer, he's still shooting weddings. So there's people who still do it, but it requires a special skill set of being, you know, I don't know, just reinventing yourself all the time, doing the same thing over and over. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty hard job, I will say. It's a tough gig for sure. Yeah, I agree. So why did you stop? Is it because you moved overseas? Yeah, I moved to Germany. I got accepted in a master's in screenwriting. And I wanted to leave out of Chile. I wanted to leave the country for years. And then this opportunity came about and I got married and my wife had an Italian visa. So it was possible for us to move to Europe and just live there. We just took the opportunity and just left. And when we were in Germany, it was impossible to shoot weddings. I didn't have the network to make it happen. I could speak German, but not well enough to, you know, be funny with the bride and the groom. <laughs> so I couldn't really get into the business. And I, I think... I fulfilled that kind of, I was happy where I was studying. So I didn't really need to go back and, and shoot weddings at that moment. I still, when I went back to Chile a few times, I still got some gigs and shoot a couple of weddings, but it wasn't my main job at that time. It was just the one thing that 
you know, a couple from my work online that really wanted me to shoot their wedding. So I would go to Chile and shoot that and then come back. But it wasn't my main gig anymore. Right. So fast forward to today, you sound like you have these multiple creative outlets. So where really is your passion? Is it the writing? Is it the directing, the singing, the photography? I'll say it's in theater, everything that involves theater, but mostly writing and directing. That's my thing. That's what I love doing the most. Also because I try to be very politically active. And if I do something that is not politically active or doesn't have a political outlet, I tend to get bored with it. So theater is a really political or actively political work. And it's an art that it's highly performative. You need to be there. There's a whole, it's counterintuitive with the business because you can only admit so many people in a theater. And if you want to move your product, you have to move the whole cast with it. So it's a very unusual business to be in. There's not much glory in it, I will say, but I love it. It's just where my passion is. It's the one thing that I enjoy writing the most. It's the one thing that I enjoy directing the most. It's the one thing that when I see it perform, I enjoy the most. So yeah, theater is where my passion is. But at the same time, photography feels other creative desires that I don't find in theater. Since theater is immediate and everything is in your face, photography allows you to inframe certain elements in the picture. And that is something that I have tried to emulate in theater. I have put cameras in the place. I've shot live cinema on theater. Um, because I have a love for cameras at the same time, or for the medium, like the act of using a camera to get in contact with other people and use it as a medium to connect with that person or reframe what is happening in reality. Yeah, I love that activity. What do you mean by theater is political? I mean, in theater, you can do things that in cinema you can't. Like, for example, if you see a movie and the movie is just one guy speaking in front of a camera with nothing else for an hour, you will ask your money back. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> for sure, because that's terribly boring. But if you go to a theater and you see a guy just talking straight to the audience for an hour, it can be an amazing play. And usually theater tends to be, at least the theater that I consume, tends to be more politically active than, you know, cinema that tends to be like industry cinema which is usually it has some kind of message but it's less radical in a way or it's not overtly calling for what i mean by political maybe i should clarify also it's not necessarily like partisan politics like oh i like this candidate or whatever it has to do with a self-reflection of the activity of the people while watching the object and that self-reflection forces you to think about what am i seeing why am i seeing this do i like this or not like the act of being aware of what you're doing while you're watching something, I think that's a political act in itself. And that entails different relationships with the object. And I think theater does that perfectly. You can be like alienated from what you're seeing and at the same time questioning why you're alienated. Like I think theater has a different relationship with the act of seeing theater than you have when watching a movie. The movie forces you or wants you to be lost inside the movie. And the theater that I like seeing is a theater that forces you to be present while you're watching the play. Like you're never completely inside the play. You're always one step beyond or behind the play or watching it unfold. But you're still you. You're never lost in the illusion. True. So do you get the same effect or can you get the same effect with photography? With theater? That political, you know, where you're having the viewer of the photo questioning what they're seeing and being affected by it. That's an interesting question. I think what photography does better than theater in a way or does it more efficiently is documenting. Mm -hmm. 
There is document theater for sure, but even documentary theater is linked to image or is linked to some kind of register of reality. And I think photography, since it's a medium that is forced to register reality because it's not creating reality, since it's more linked to the real world, I think it serves a different purpose. I don't think you can achieve the same effect, but I think photography is, it's a highly political also work that you can do, especially with like photo documentary or you see like war photographers or photographing riots or marches or whatever you have in reality that's happening, especially now that it's unfolding so many things in this coronavirus thingy. There's so many stuff happening outside at the same time. And you can be in relationship with that through the camera. I think it's a very interesting element you have when you have a device that can record reality and reframe it in a way. For sure. So I'm looking at some of your photos now and I'm talking about the protests Mm -hmm. photos on your website. Are they from the recent protests? No, those are protests from 2011 to 2013. Those were the protests for a reform in the educational system. The president that we have now, Piñera, he was a president before once, and those photos are from that period of time. Those were the last images I captured when I was in Chile. After that, I left. And I was very, very active in those years. I went to not all, but almost all of the marches that were in those days. Like every week, there were like at least two marches. So we marched a lot, and I was in the front lines with the guys, and and with the anarchists, and they were just, you know, fighting with the police, and I was taking the pictures, and I was forced to bring my film camera because the digital camera couldn't endure the <laughs> the hardness of the environment. There was a lot of water, a lot of tear gas, and a lot of beatings that uh, we were forced to endure. So digital cameras wouldn't allow that, but film cameras, since they're old, and I bought my film cameras for really cheap back then. Nobody was shooting film, nobody cared. So I could bring film cameras to the protest. And that's how that project came about. It was just the necessity of documenting something with some camera. And film cameras were at my disposal. I was just learning how to develop film. So that's where it came from. Got it. So when you went into those marches and you created these photos for this project, let's call it a project, Mm -hmm. then what was the mindset? Are you creating these images for yourself, to document for yourself, or is this to share with the public and get a response? Why were you shooting these images? Uh, I never thought about showing those images outside, you know, my Flickr account, which was the thing that was the hot thing back then. Yeah. And I was forming myself. Here's the thing. I used those images to learn how to operate film cameras. I wanted to be better at composing. I wanted to be better at focusing with manual lenses. And I just got this Canon A1 with a 51.4 for, I got it for, I don't know, 60 bucks or something. It was just basically free. So I got the camera and I was shooting it. My interest was getting better at the camera, but at the same time, I felt like it was such an important event in my country that was happening that I felt it was like my duty as a citizen to document it. And I wasn't alone in that. Like many, many other young photographers who had never shot film or never used a camera before started going to the streets and taking pictures. So there was an alliance of photographers who were not professional photographers who were shooting these things and then just uploading them online. Also, one of the other things that were happening is that there was a very heavy, you know, wall of information from the official media. So the official media will never show images of the protest. They will only show, you know, the police 
being heroes and taking care of these evil people who want to destabilize our economy or whatever. And all the young people that I met were like, we need to go against this. And the only chance we have is to grab our cameras and show this to the world or document it and then have some kind of archive. So I think it was, it was not only mine, but it was the duty of the photographers who were just of my generation who wanted to have a saying in that historical archive that eventually will be, you know, maybe will become important, but we didn't know. It was just the thing that we were doing. Sure. So did you get involved or did you go and photograph the more recent protests and marches for Black Lives Matter and, you know, what's been going on in the States? No, no. There was a march the other day outside my house and I grabbed my camera and went out and took some pictures. But I took those pictures with a 50 millimeter and like very, very away from the whole situation. Not because of the protest itself, but because of the virus. I don't want to risk it. I've been locked inside for four months and I don't want to risk everything for one march. Yes. So I haven't actually been active in that regard. If this wasn't the case, I will for sure be in the forefront but the situation is kind of difficult, so I need to take care of myself. I need to go to study. There's a lot of things that need to be, you know, wait before going to that. So do you think there's an argument to say that, hey, you know, you're an amateur photographer. Let's say that, you know, there was no risk of you getting the virus. Is there an argument to say, hey, you're not a, a professional documentary photographer for the paper. You shouldn't be there photographing. That should be left to the professionals. Like if, if there was no epidemic, if it was just like life? Yeah, a protest against the government, for example, like in Chile, but here in the States. I think the same that was happening in Chile, I think it, it applies the same element. If history is unfolding in front of you, it would be a good idea for you to document it. That's my take on it. If you're not putting yourself and other people at risk by doing so. So if there's some kind of protest and you can be part of it and document it and, and you know, help, the cost that you believe in and you for me you got to believe in the cost in order to go and document it if you're going to document it to undermine it i don't think that's a very healthy thing but if you truly believe in that and you want to take part of that and the way in which you can contribute is by taking pictures then by all means go and do it i think you really don't need to be a professional and in fact i think the fact that you're not a professional and you're not paying the bills by doing it gives you a lot of freedom that other people who are professionals and who need to grab the image that, you know, they are being mandated to capture. You don't have that mandate. You don't have an editor. You're just you. You can capture whatever you feel like it. And I think that freedom is very beautiful to capture protests. Mm -hmm. But where would you even share it to have any impact? I mean, on your Facebook page, on your Instagram account? Yeah, on your yeah Instagram, on your Facebook. What happens is also, at least in Chile, what happened with the protest is that a lot of activities started being organized by this. Okay, so I sing on a band. <laughs> and my band is a hardcore band. It's a post-hardcore band. We're very into the DIY scene. So when the protest began and there was people taking pictures and whatnot, at the same time, a lot of groups were self-organized. They were making, you know, exhibitions. So the pictures that we were taking will be exhibited in the very south of Chile or they will say, okay, we're going to make an independent scene and you will send those pictures so it will be you know, distributed. We didn't make any money. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to show what the press wasn't showing. And that could happen now via Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but it can also happen through other media that just circulate by hand. I think the circulation by hand is a very important circulation that is usually, 
it's more old school, but at the same time, it has that feeling of important because there's an object that you're taking care of. So I think, I think that's also a main of distribution. I like that. I want to come back to your projects in just a second. Sure. But I mean, you're busy. You sound like you're busy. You're doing your PhD. You're living in this new city. I know you're married. Do you have a child as well? No, not yet. No kids. So what are you doing for an income? So as an income right now, I have a fellowship from the university. So that's the reason why we moved. We were living in the UK and I was working as a playwright and screenwriter in the UK. And I have my YouTube channel. I was selling my scenes. I have my online store. So I had a lot of small pockets of money that were like organized incomes. And when we moved here, I had to like let many of those pockets go because I had to focus completely on the PhD. So right now my income comes from the fellowship and Sometimes, you know, they're constantly staging my place in Chile and in Mexico. So that's another small pocket that I have. Sometimes I get some kind of a friend in here or somebody needs to have a photo shoot. Or I know a lot of musicians because many of my friends are jazz musicians. So sometimes they're going to release an, an album and they need somebody to take the pictures for the album. And there I go, I take the pictures. So that kind of things are mostly my income, like the fellowship and small works. So lots of little sources coming in here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a main source. I've learned to run away from main sources and have many pockets. I like that. Because then if one pocket fails, you can just create another one. Yes. Well, let's dive a little bit into your YouTube channel. And is it a profitable pursuit? Is it something that the listener, a photographer, should consider starting? Uh, that's <laughs> a very good question. The size that I have is not profitable as a channel. But you have 80,000 subscribers. Yeah, but okay, so maybe this requires a little bit more explanation. If you make a YouTube channel with the intent of making money out of the YouTube channel, I can't ensure you, but you will need to make a lot of decisions that will put you in that area. And what I mean is you need to start doing some more catchy videos and things that are more clickbaity and, you know, because with 80,000 people, you can't make a living. You need, I don't know, 150 or 200 or 300,000 people to start making some kind of money that will make sense. Do you mean from ad revenue? Yeah. Right. So you can choose whether or not to show ads on your channel and you get paid every time an ad gets watched or clicked or both? Watched, if I'm not mistaken, because the Google algorithm puts the ads and then you watch the ad and you're forced to watch the ad, actually. Yes. <laughs> and put it like a five second and there's some horrible ad and you just skip it. That's why many people who have channels my size or smaller get deals with brands. That's why you have so many Audible and, you know, Skillshare and whatever you have, like those kinds of advertisers on the channels, because that's the only way you can actually make some kind of money out of your channel. But the other option you have, and it's the option that I've taken, is to make Another source of income by having a Patreon, for example. And Patreon makes a lot of sense if your channel is aiming towards creating some kind of community or if you're not trying to make deals with you know, sponsorships, if that's the case. Nothing wrong with it. I don't mind watching an ad for a channel if that ad makes the channel going. Like I'm happy for that person. But for me, I'd rather have some kind of Patreon and I have more control over my constant revenue of income even if it's not huge, but at least I know how much it is. And at the same time, what happens is, for example, I'm selling scenes, or not now, but I'm going to start reselling scenes. I was selling scenes before. 
and I'll start doing it again. And that's another source of income. That's another way in which people who watch the channel say like, oh, you know, I like this guy. Maybe I can, you know, buy a scene and support this person. Like, I don't want to be a patron, but I can buy a scene. Sure, that sounds fun. Boom, and there you go. So that it's like a tip jar. That's how I see it. Yes, got it, got it. So for the listener who's unaware, what is Patreon and how does it work? Patreon is a platform in which you subscribe to some kind of content creator and you pay. There are different ways. You can pay by creation or monthly. So by creation, for example, if you follow somebody who makes YouTube videos, you can say, okay, every time this person makes a YouTube video, I'll give him $1 or $5. Or you can say, every month I'm going to give this person $1, $5, $20, $50, whatever you want. And in return, that person gives you certain things. It can give you like access to the videos early. It can give you, you know, access to behind the scenes. It can give you podcasts or private to the Patreons. Like every person has different options for that. But Patreon is a platform that allows creators to make a living out of people who follow them. And the creator gives them more content. So people not only support you, but also have more stuff that they like at the same time. So I think it's a win-win situation if you want to support creators. I like that. Do Patreon take a cut from you? Yeah, I actually don't remember right now how much is the cut, but it's not like a big cut at all. I'm a big Patreon fan, basically because I know this. I mean, I've seen him. The CEO is Jack Conte, but I've been following Jack for a long time on his YouTube channel. And when he launched Patreon, I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And my wife got a Patreon. I got a Patreon. And I've been on meetings with the people who are like organizing the whole thing in Patreon. And they look like nice people. It doesn't seem like a company that will take advantage of the creators at all. Like it's a company that has the creators in mind and they want to make the best out of them. So that's why I like it. I think it's a good thing. I don't know. I like it a lot. Yeah, I agree. And I know there's some podcasters using the same platform for their subscribers who don't want to monetize with advertising or sponsors. Yes, that's correct. And they make some kind of networks of podcasts like sometimes a, a group of podcasts organize themselves and like okay you talk about this you i have my podcast about this other topic and then they make like collapse and they made like a big patreon and you have access to you know five podcasts or whatever so it's i don't know there's people organizing in different ways i like that and you also mentioned zines which is i guess short for magazine but it's a photographic uh, what would you call it a photographic magazine small scale yeah yeah small scale magazine do-it-yourself vibe that's printed in a like in a good quality but it's not like photographic photo paper quality it's mostly like recycled paper but nicely printed it has a independent feel so it's a small run kind of magazine and it serves the purpose of showing the work without pretending to be a proper photo book okay so bring to mind and share with us one of your most successful zines is there one that comes to mind Yeah, for example, the first one that I did, it's called uh, A Parade of Strangers. And it's based on the project that I did in which I shot 30 rolls in 30 days with a Mamiya C330. And I just bought that camera and I wanted to use it. And I said to myself, the only way I can get better with this camera is by using it every day. So why don't I make a project out of that? And that's what I did. And I shot 30 rolls in 30 days and I just shared all the images on YouTube. And then I chose the best ones and I compiled the scene in which I explained more or less the feeling that I had with the images. And it was a very beautiful time in my life because I was living in London and then I moved to Hastings, which is a city in a beach 
in the UK. It's a small town. It's a very lovely small town. And the scene shows you that process of going from the city to the small town. And it's me discovering the city through the camera. And yeah, that's a small project and a small scene. And it's, it's still there. And I still like the pictures that I got. Premium members of PhotoBiz Exposed hear more of the best photography business strategies from every guest. Let me just swing back really quickly to zines because there's one question I didn't ask you that I wanted to is what do you use to design your zines? Uh, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> is she a designer? Yeah, she's a designer. And here's the trick. I am useless in Adobe in design and all that thing. I have no idea how to use it. Like my wife, she's an illustrator and she designs my scenes basically. So she's using InDesign? Yeah, she uses InDesign, yeah. Okay, got it, got it. <laughs> what, what do I use? I use my wife. That's, yeah. the, that's the real reality of the situation. That is the best application <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah. Your wife. She's great. I just, I watch her do her magic. And I'm like, yeah, I like this. That's my whole contribution to it. <laughs> Very nice. Eduardo, where is the best place for the listener to learn more about you and follow you? Is it YouTube? Is that the best place to follow along? Yeah, for sure. YouTube. That's where most things happen. I have an Instagram account too, but I basically post the pictures from the videos on YouTube and some other things. But YouTube is the main thing where you can follow what I'm doing. Fantastic. I'm going to add links to your YouTube channel, obviously to Instagram and your website as well. I don't think you're active on Facebook anymore by the look of it. I think it was 2018, your last post. Yeah, no, I just, I, Facebook's dead. <laughs> <laughs> if I was to talk to you and the listener was to follow along, where do you see yourself in the next three, four, five years? Finishing my PhD. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah, it's a seven-year program and I'm entering my third year. So in four more years, I should be finishing, giving my dissertation and being super happy. Wow. So where will that lead to once you have your PhD? What's the plan? Um taking over the world and no probably what i'll do is i'll probably be teaching theater and playwriting that's what i want to do i love teaching so and still staging plays writing teaching basically one foot on the academia and one foot on the creative side and i'm happy with that equilibrium if that happens i'm set nice and where do you think or where do you see yourself settling down staying living for now here like since the program is seven years yeah probably here is fine and i have many friends here so it makes sense to stay in new york but i don't know like i've been moving around so much for so many years that i don't know what's coming afterwards for now i'm happy where i am i tend to enjoy where i am and if the possibilities arise to have a change i usually wait them and if it's good enough i take them but for now i'm really happy here i'm having a blast over here fantastic Eduardo, it's been a real pleasure, mate, to have you on the show. And uh, thank you so much for sharing everything you have. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That was real fun. I had a blast. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Eduardo as much as I did. I think it was pretty plain to see that I really appreciate Eduardo's approach to photography, to life, to creativity, to learning new skills, and just how friendly and approachable the guy is. I mean, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to him. So if you felt the same... Let Eduardo know in the comments area of the show notes. You can find them this week over at photobizx.com forward slash 377. The comments area are at the very bottom of the show notes. Now, in those same show notes, I've got examples of some of Eduardo's work, some of the images that we were talking about and referencing in the interview. I've got links to anything and everything he shared, including his YouTube channel. If you haven't seen him there, definitely go and have a look. 
have a listen and I'd encourage you to have a listen particularly or have a look at particularly his videos on his projects and the ones that we were referencing in the interview earlier. Oh, and if you are a premium member, I'll be adding Eduardo into the members' Facebook group so you can have easy access to him there. Maybe you have a follow-up question. Maybe there's something that I didn't ask that you wish that I did. Hit him up inside the Facebook group there. I know and I'm sure that he'll be happy to come back and answer any questions you might have for him. Just before we close out today's episode, a final reminder about the daily vlog challenge. It's kicking off today if you're listening to the episode as it goes live. It's not too late to get into that. Even if you are hearing this a few days after the interview is going live, you can still catch up pretty easily if you're only two or three days behind. Remember, we have the weekends off. It's a three-week challenge. Each challenge is bite-sized. You only need 15 to 30 minutes max a day and that's to watch the lesson record your video upload it to the facebook group and leave a little bit of feedback for a couple of other members so it's not too late to get involved if you want to get more comfortable being yourself on video if you want to make a fantastic engaging enthusiastic hard to forget impression to any client inquiries you get particularly if you don't like getting on the phone or you feel that your clients don't like getting on the phone, video replies would be an amazing way to approach that. And that's just one of the small things that we cover in the challenge. If you want to learn more or get involved, head over to dailyvlogchallenge.com. Alrighty, that is it for this episode of the podcast. This is this is the first time I've recorded outside for quite a while and I've got to say it's so distracting. There's so many other things going on. I really have to concentrate and stay focused on talking to you while I'm doing this. And uh, yeah, there's people going in and out of the tire store as I'm recording this. I'm getting some strange looks talking into my Zoom H1 and hopefully the audio quality has been good enough of this and you've been able to clearly understand and hear me through the intro and outro all right look that really is it for me i hope wherever you are you are staying safe healthy and well and i will talk to you soon have a fantastic week bye for now if you have enjoyed this episode head to photobizx.com join the conversation leave a comment and share your thoughts on the interview with andrew and today's special guest 